The songs this weekend were selected very well. You can tell, can't you? Thank you, thank you, music team, for all your service to us this weekend. This is phenomenal. Um, I love that the perfect wisdom of our God is the theme song. I think every song, if you look at the different verses, it goes almost perfectly with the theme, what we're talking about. Whether it's wisdom, whether it's trials, whether it's entrusting ourselves to the Lord in difficult times. Uh, One of my favorite verses in all Christian songs is in the perfect wisdom of our God. It's that last one. Grant me wisdom from above to pray for peace and cling to love and teach me humbly to receive the sun and rain of your sovereignty. We've seen that in Ecclesiastes, that God sends both sun and rain on all of us. Each strand of sorrow has a place within this tapestry of grace. So, through the trials, I choose to say, your perfect will in your perfect way. And perhaps even one of the best lines in this song too, Oh, the mystery of the cross. I think by the end of tonight, you'll see how that relates exactly with what Ecclesiastes is talking about. The the cross is quite a mystery in God's beautiful and perfect plan. It almost feels like it was yesterday and it was Christmas. I hope you had a good Christmas with your family and friends. My wife and I have some traditions that we share together. And specifically some films or shows that we like to watch every Christmas season. Such as the best rendition of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Right. A Muppet's Christmas Carol. It's the best one. I mean, that's just my opinion. (laughs) It's objective. That's objective. And though we aren't always able to do it, and this shouldn't be surprising to you, we aspire to watch the three-movie trilogy of The Lord of the Rings every Christmas. Uh, I remember watching those films years ago for the first time in theaters, and they came out during the Christmas season. So it just feels right around this time of year. And then the ultimate classic, A Charlie Brown Christmas. We definitely try to find a way to watch that as best as we can, whether it's through those videos on YouTube that people have or whatever. And we make sure that we get Linus's part of the Christmas story in there. Some YouTube videos take it out, which is sad, but... Uh, We try to get it in there. And then one that may not be as popular, but it's nostalgic for the two of us, is a Garfield Christmas, which is hilarious. And, you know, it's probably more just nostalgic for us anyways, but whatever. But perhaps the one film tradition that we're always faithful to watch is Home Alone. Yes, somehow we always end up watching this one. And it's ironic because it really wasn't intended to be a Christmas movie at all. And yet it's become one of the most iconic American Christmas movies of all time. And what's funny in the film is that little Kevin McAllister, who has been accidentally left at home alone by his family during the Christmas season, has this eerie-looking neighbor who just keeps popping up in the film, encountering Kevin time and time again. He has that creepy stare that... Kevin cannot immediately overcome, and especially after the rumor that he heard that this old man was somehow a serial killer or something. And so every encounter, Kevin runs away from his neighbor. He's running away from his problems and from his fears. 
But the neighbor keeps reappearing in the movie, reappearing before Kevin, and forces Kevin to face his fear. And eventually they have one final unsuspecting meeting at the local, I assume, Catholic church in town. And there's a bond that's made between them, and a relationship is forged, and it's, it's really sweet. And there's even the symbolism in the fact that the old man who had supposedly hurt his hand some some accident or something like that in the middle of the film, now displays a Band-Aid on his hand when he shakes Kevin's hand at the end of that scene, symbolizing that their relationship had kind of been restored, which is kind of interesting. And in this way, Home Alone pictures this cycle, this man, this old man that just keeps coming back over and over and over again uh, until finally the cycle is resolved. And things are mended. And a happy ending takes place. I'm going to submit to you tonight that that's exactly what's happening in Ecclesiastes, too. There are these circles in this book. We've talked about them a lot in every single session. There are circles in life that are going round and around and around. Uh, And these these circles are never-ending The sun goes in circles, the wind goes in circles, the rivers, man's desires, yet he's never satisfied. Time goes in circles, we experience good things, we experience bad things, we can't predict what's going to happen next. And these circles are an endless maze that can cause despair in anyone who tries to reason his way out of these circles. But as we finish the book tonight, we will see that these circles will be redeemed. They will be redeemed tonight. Solomon will actually find that these circles work for good in God's plan if you approach them correctly. It's really amazing and very clever how he observes this in life. And so with that, we need to bring everything together and discover the final conclusion to Solomon's message in Ecclesiastes. And it is powerful. It is powerful. It's incredible. And I'll show you why. Now, I uh, received a little bit of permission to take you a little longer tonight. (laughs) Um, Not too much longer. Don't worry, it won't be 11 o'clock by the time we're done. But there's so much to cover. And there's that balance between time. We could rush it or we could make it quality. I'm going to try and do it quality. Uh, I think that... um, you'll get more out of it because of it. It might take you a little bit longer than night, but this will probably go a little, like 10 minutes more than we typically do. And I appreciate your patience and your understanding in that. Now, as a reminder, as we go into this, Solomon's writing this message to the world. You should know that by now. Probably to be translated all into their languages, spoken in their street corners. And he doesn't mention... Remember his own name in the book. He kind of keeps himself under the radar. He doesn't mention his God's name, Yahweh, because he wants everyone in the world to accept his message at face value and discover with him why life without God's revelation is absolutely meaningless. Why we need God. And as we have seen, fearing God is perhaps the primary theme in this book. It's the primary theme. And it is just that. It is surrendering to the fact that God is God and we are not. We need him to speak. We need him to act. We are desperate for his wisdom and for his work in this world. 
We cannot find out what life is about without Him. There is no meaning in life without Him and His revelation. And we have looked at the first half of the chiasm of the book, how it's built to this climactic moment of fearing God in chapter 7 and verse 18 specifically. And remember, every big conclusion that's part of the chiasm that Solomon comes to, he's taking from his previous conclusions and then he's building upon them. And so in summary, just from the first three conclusions that we've seen here so far in chapter 2, chapter 3, and then chapter 5, he has discovered so far this and recommends this. Enjoy life, not in sin, and enjoy life because you can't control your destiny. Fear God in your enjoyment of life, but also maximize your time to enjoy life because life is full of sorrow and suffering. That's where he is so far in his conclusions. Ultimately, reaching this climax of the chiasm in the middle of chapter 7, to fear God, to fear God. And now we must see how the rest of the book will resolve in this chiasm and bring everything together. And we've also looked at each chapter and assigned a one-word theme for each one. Solomon first observed life. It's circular. It's nauseating. It's depressing. And then he experimented in chapter 2 with pleasure and projects, money and madness and wisdom and folly. And some advantages were found, but all is ultimately temporary, even if you do get an advantage, and ultimately leads to nothing. And then he discussed time. We talked about this this morning. Time is circular. Everyone experiences the best of times. Everyone experiences the worst of times. And so we must fear God because he's in control of time. And he's in control of what happens in your life and in time. And then in chapter 4, we talked about alliances. Alliances. They're good. They protect you against oppression and competition. But allying yourself with people does have a downside because people are fickle, they can be disloyal, and they can turn on you. And so, he concludes, we must wait for God. We must wait for God. We should not speak for God. We must let him speak. And money only brings problems with it. So then we should maximize our enjoyment in life because life is very unsatisfying and full of trouble. In fact, you can have all the money in the world, and yet it can be stolen from you, like chapter 6 says. You can live the longest life and have no enjoyment, and God has made life to be quite impossible to obtain that fullest joy. We can't attain to that fullest joy. And more than that, We can't even attain to God. And that's how he ends chapter 6. Who can attain to God? Unattainability. He is unattainable. No man can do it. And then in chapter 7, the tide begins to turn. The light gets a little brighter. Solomon realizes that hardship and suffering and sorrow does something brilliantly good in God's plan. But only the wise can see it. Only the wise will experience it. It produces character, godly character. Yeah, God bends things out of shape in your life. Yes, he does. 
And you can't straighten that when he does that. And this forces you to fear him. It forces you to fear him. It forces you to trust him and wait for him. And then I left you with that confusing verse in verse 16. (laughs) Do not be excessively righteous. Do not be overly wise. Why ruin yourself? This is the unexpected wisdom from Solomon. You wouldn't even expect that to be in the Bible. I've really wanted to do like a, I almost did this, like a little, like A, B, or C. What do you think is in the Bible? And I'm just going to try to find ones that like make sense to be in the Bible. You know, love the sinner, hate the sin. Like, that's not in the Bible. Um, but this one is, don't be excessively righteous. Don't be overly wise. You wouldn't expect that to be in the Bible. What is Solomon talking about? Why would he encourage us to not pursue lots of wisdom and pursue lots of righteous living? Well, let's look at this. Turn your Bibles over to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and we'll look at this starting in verse 15. We've got to back up a verse to catch his scenario that he is describing. Chapter 7 and verse 15. Everything he said, I've seen in the days of my vanity. There is a righteous one who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked one who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Now, do you hear that? Something in life is off, and Solomon is realizing it. And Job saw this too, by the way. Job picks up on this a lot in his account. Now, let me clarify something too. You're like, well, nobody's righteous. I know my theology. What is Solomon talking about? No one's righteous. No, not one. Romans 3. How can Solomon say that anyone is righteous? Solomon's not talking about righteous perfection. That's pretty obvious here. He's actually just trying to compare someone who's more righteous than someone who's wicked. Shouldn't the wicked person receive a greater judgment? I know. Everyone deserves judgment. But shouldn't the really wicked person receive more judgment? Why is he getting off scot-free and enjoying a wonderful life? Solomon sees the very opposite happening of what should be happening. Wicked people live long, comfortable, cozy lives. And many righteous people live short, uncomfortable, distressed, and oppressed lives. That's not right. That's not justice. Something's wrong. And so that's what gets Solomon to conclude. Don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wise. Why ruin yourself? Okay. Why? Why are you saying that, Solomon? Because Solomon is warning you and me from pursuing righteousness and wisdom. I want you to hear this carefully. As though it will allow you to gain an advantage over wicked people in this life, and that's not possible. If you're trying to be righteous, to gain an advantage in this life, you will miserably fail at that. You you will find that that will not work. In fact, what happens is that the more wisdom you try to pursue, the more righteousness you try to pursue, the more stressed you become. And you still suffer for for being righteous. And the wicked person continues on enjoying his wicked life longer than you, more comfortable than you. And you're like, are you saying don't be righteous? No, no, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if you're doing this to find an advantage in this life, you will not find it. Not in the here and now. 
not as though it's going to be a better life for you than the wicked person. But then he balances it and says, okay, yeah, don't go to the other extreme though. Verse 17, don't be wicked. Don't be excessively wicked. Don't be a fool. Why should you die before your time? In other words, don't be a fool. Don't be dumb. Because pursuing wickedness and foolishness often leads to a terrible life. Wickedness and foolishness often leads to isolation, homelessness, imprisonment, or even to the end of your life, an accidental death or a suicide. No, no. Verse 18, here's where he concludes it. And this is that center of the, I would say, the whole book, really. It is good that you, literally it says, grasp onto this. That you take hold of this and also not let go your hand from this. Just comparing two different things. The first thing he said, the one thing was in verse 16, don't be excessively righteous, don't be overly wise. It's good that you grasp a hold of that. Don't be a wicked, don't be a fool. It's also good that you grasp a hold of that. And then the end of verse 18, for the one who fears God will come away with both of them. There is wisdom in both of these. In other words, what he's saying is, don't pursue hard the extremes for one or the other. Now, he's not saying, okay, so if you can't pursue the extremes, then you need to do a little bit of both. You need to be a little good, a little bit of bad, a little yin, a little yang. No, that's not what he's saying either. He's saying, striving after both extremes so as to find a better life here and now doesn't work. It doesn't, neither of those work. Whether you're good or bad, God controls the quality of your life and the length of your life. And it doesn't always correspond to whether you were good or whether you were bad. It's completely out of your hands. It's totally anti-charismatic movement, isn't it? It's not the seeker-friendly gospel that you hear. If you're good, God's going to bless you. It's not. It's not true. Solomon says that's not true. Job says that's not true. And then look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. For there is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and never sins. Oh, this is such a good verse. Solomon brings up one of the first instances in the Bible. Hear that? This is one of the first instances in the Bible that clearly indicates that all men are sinful. Clearly. He did this also in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9. And in his prayer of dedication for the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 46. That's not a coincidence. Solomon wrote all of those. His prayer, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Solomon, through and through. And he's saying the same thing in his life. And you must realize this, that Solomon is the first one in biblical history to ever clearly communicate, clearly communicate that no one, no one is perfectly righteous in this world. Isn't that interesting? Solomon's the first one to clearly codify it. It was implied by people who came before him. I would argue that Genesis 6 and other things. It's implied, but doesn't clearly say everyone and codifies it into a theological statement. And very clear, we know it's very clear by the time that Paul asserts it in Romans chapter 3, the one that we're very familiar with. There's none righteous, no, not one. None who understands, none who seeks for God. But Solomon is the first one to firmly establish this theology in history. Wow. 
Why Solomon? That's what you should be asking yourself. Why Solomon? Why now? Why not at the beginning? Why not in Genesis, at Genesis 3? Why not explain it then? Because it's now clear. If Solomon can come closest to being the Messiah, the closest one to ever come being the Messiah, and yet fall so far short of the standard, it should be a, historically apparent to everyone, no one can be perfect. In other words, if Solomon can't do it, no one can. No one can. And that's why Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 21 and 22 warn us not to take people's criticism too seriously. Because if we're all sinners, we've criticized people too. Our words tear people down. Sometimes not always publicly. We talk and gossip about others. So he says, don't take criticism too seriously because you're a sinner too. No one's perfect. No one can be perfectly righteous. Don't strive to be excessively righteous when it's not possible and it can't guarantee a longer life or a better life. That is Solomon's wisdom here in the middle of chapter 7. Now look at verse 23. Look at verse 23. This is interesting. All of this, he says, I tested with wisdom. And I said... I'll be wise. I can be wise. But it was far from me. It was far from me. Far is that which is was. And very, very deep. Who can find it? That's my own translation of that verse. But I think that that's a, that's a fair way to take that. And I want you to see this. Because you're probably like, wait a minute. I thought Solomon said he was wise. I thought he said he was the wisest of anyone who came before him. Didn't he find wisdom? Now he's saying, I couldn't find wisdom. I couldn't find it at all. It was deep, very deep. It couldn't be found. Well, yes, it's true. He did find wisdom, but you see, he's talking about that ultimate wisdom. The ultimate wisdom. That trying to be excessively wise, like we saw in verse 16, he can't find that. He can't find that. You know, the kind of wisdom that really can understand everything. Everything that God is doing. Solomon couldn't find that. So, he uses more scientific terminology in verse 25, interesting, to seek out wisdom and to find a conclusion. And then it says, he found a woman more bitter than death. This is such an interesting passage. People will get thrown for a loop. Like, what is going on here? Where is he going with this? She's like a trap or a snare or even a black widow's web. And as we see there in verse 26, a good man will escape her clutches, but a sinner will be ensnared by her. He'll be ensnared by the web. Now, there's little doubt. This is not talking about bad women in general or a specific woman on Solomon's mind. No, this is actually a reference to Lady Folly that we saw in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 9. Lady Folly. Most men fall to Lady Folly. They give in to the foolishness. But a few good ones, he says, escape her. There are a few that can escape her. However, verse 27, he says this. See this? I have found, says Kohelet, or says the preacher, one thing added to another to find a conclusion. Hold on a second. Let me explain something there. One thing adding one thing to another to find a conclusion. Do you hear that? Adding one to another. 
That's what we've been talking about, how the conclusions build upon one another. Solomon's actually telling you what he's doing. He's building his conclusions one on top of another. Then verse 28. That which still my soul seeks, but I have not found. There is one man from a thousand, out of a thousand that I have found, but a woman among these, all of these, I have not found. Now, hold on before you think like that's such a slight against women. What in the world is that talking about? Because that sounds pretty crazy and that that shouldn't be in the Bible either. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Remember, we're talking about lady who? Folly, right? Lady folly. This is about lady folly versus lady wisdom. Yeah. This is not about disparaging women as though they're worse than men. So his idea is, yeah, most men fall to lady folly. Most men fall to foolishness. They get ensnared by her. But some escape her. That's the one man among a thousand. Maybe out of a thousand you might find a man who escapes lady folly. Yeah. But a woman among these? Who's that? That's lady wisdom. That is lady wisdom. In other words, Solomon is saying, it's rare. I can find a man or two or three, maybe, who escape folly, but I can't find lady wisdom among anyone. No one. She's too far from me. And that makes perfect sense in this context, doesn't it? Because that's what verses 22 and 23 were saying. Wisdom is far from me. It's deep. Very deep. I can't find it. It's also what Job said in Job 28. It's a beautiful passage. I wish we had time to go into Job 28. I wish we had time to go into the entire book of Job, actually. But we don't have time to do that. Job and Ecclesiastes are talking about almost all the same things. Job says in Job 28, we risk our lives drilling mine shafts into the earth. Just to spend all of our life, put ourselves in danger to find even the smallest bit of gold or silver or diamonds. Maybe, just maybe in one's lifetime, he might find the jackpot in the earth. But the question is, who can find wisdom? You go down into a mine shaft, like, I don't know, something like that. You find gold, you find silver, right? You can find those things. But you can't find wisdom. Who can find it? This earth does not contain it. What you see, hear, taste, touch, smell, you can't find it. Lady wisdom is harder to find than deep, deep, uh, gold deep in the mountains. No one can find her. And that's Solomon's conclusion. So that's why in verse 29, he returns to his premise that no one's righteous. He says, God made man upright. God made man innocent, upright in the Garden of Eden. But people seek out sinful schemes and plans. No one is righteous and no one can attain to ultimate lady wisdom. And so the question is, what hope is there for man? And he leaves us on another cliffhanger in chapter 7. Good thing that we're going to end the sermon tonight, right? Because there's no more cliffhangers. Yay. That's chapter 7. Character. Chapter 7. It's all about righteousness, wisdom, or in other words, character. And now it's time for us to go super speed. Okay? 
we are going to cover the next five chapters very fast. I understand that. There's a lot still to cover here. But everything is resolving. We've come a long ways. We've set a, a good foundation, I think. And so this should go quicker. So buckle your seatbelts. Put your crash helmets on. Make sure you have an airbag in front of you. Here we go. Starting in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is all about wisdom. Wisdom. Now, I know we've covered wisdom quite a bit already, haven't we? But Solomon's not done. He's got a little bit more to say on the matter. And Solomon just got done saying in chapter 7 that ultimate wisdom cannot be found. I can't find lady wisdom. No one can know all the ways of God. No one can be perfectly righteous either. But, chapter 8, there is wisdom that we can obtain in this life to a degree. It's not perfect, but it will guide us in this world and help us avoid disaster. Like verse 2, Solomon says, use wisdom. Obey your your rulers. Obey orders from a king. Obey orders from a president. He has all authority over you and your country. You can't stop him, is what he's basically saying. Obey him because you can't stop him. You can't control him. The king won't put up with stupidity in front of him or wickedness in front of him. He's not going to put up with that. So be on your best behavior before him. That's wisdom. It's using wisdom. In other words, don't be a rebel. Don't die on that unnecessary hill. Use wisdom to make your ways pleasing before him. Not to please men, not to be a man pleaser, but wisdom can help you navigate sticky situations when responding to authority. It really can, especially authority that's not necessarily a God-honoring authority. If you are wise, you can respond thoughtfully and turn away a king's anger anger against you. It's like Proverbs 15, verse 1, right? A kind answer turns away anger. Look at verse 6, chapter 8, verse 6. Because for every delight, there is a time and judgment. Ah, that should sound familiar. It's a time and judgment for every delight. For the evil of man is great upon him. But that first part, it's a time and judgment for every delight. That's what he said in chapter 3. You should remember that maybe from chapter 3. Everything in life happens, which means even bad times are going to happen. So, use wisdom to your advantage so that life doesn't get worse than it already is. Because life is, can get pretty bad. Use wisdom to navigate around and make life a little bit easier for yourself. Verse 7 says that no one can predict what will happen in the future, especially what will happen to him after he dies. Who knows? God is the one that ultimately knows what's going to happen to you after you die and what that final fate will be. So be wise with the time that's allotted to you. Be wise with the time that's allotted to you. Like verse 8 says, you can't control the wind. You can't control the day that you die. You can't even control... If you can, if you're like in the army and uh, you want to go home, you can't control the day that you get to go home. That's how it is in, in the army. That's how it is in military. When a king or Congress or a president has authority, they are going to make what they want to happen happen. You're not going to be able to control that any more than you can tr- control the wind or you can control your coming death or even being sent home from war. And that's what Solomon uses as his examples. So then in verse 9, chapter 8, verse 9, Solomon considers a situation in which a person can have power over someone else uh, to cause relentless harm to him. That sounds awful. 
sounds like a terrible life to live, where someone's just pestering, oppressing someone relentlessly, unending. That's clearly, obviously, the wicked man oppressing an innocent man or someone who is weaker and wanting to harm that person. That's what the wicked man's trying to do. So then verses 10 and 11, these wicked people who do things like this, they used to go around, they used to do their evil, they used to be a part of the normal activities of life. But then after they die, people forget sometimes even the evil that they did against someone who was oppressed. People's memory can fail them about how bad other people are. That's a sad fate and that's a sad reality. And also, have you ever noticed that when wicked people commit crimes today, and this, ha- this is what Solomon's saying in his day, and it happens today, it often takes months or years to sentence that person. The judicial system in our country is, can be very slow, and that encourages people to continue to be wicked because they don't get punished right away. Sometimes they don't even get that much jail time. I mean, that's just its own problem. So because the court system can be so slow, people are encouraged to continue to be wicked because they either won't get caught or their punishment won't be that bad or it'll be delayed for a period of time. And uh, so then they're just encouraged, well, I'm not going to get caught or it's going to be so long from now, it's not even going to matter anymore. They're going to forget about it. Where's the swift justice? That's what Solomon's asking. Where's the swift justice? But even so, this is so cool. Even so, Solomon says in verse 12, verse 12, Even if a sinner continues doing evil, they're continuing doing evil upon evil and they're prolonging their life and the courts are really slow to punish them. He says, yet I know it will be better for those who fear God. I know it will be better for those who fear God. Oh, I love that Solomon's finally made a very definitive statement like that because you can tell he's come a long ways and there it is. Fear God. We see another instance of fear God. But how can Solomon be so sure about this? I know that it'll be better for those who fear God. Especially since Solomon's not even sure at this point what's going to happen to people after they die. How do you know that that's true? How do you know it's going to be better for those who fear God? It's because we just got done seeing this, but he just finished talking about the authority of kings, right? who don't put up with your wickedness in front of them. Don't be evil before a king. Otherwise, he's going to punish you. Remember that, right? So if that's true about kings, then how much more true is that about God? So Solomon's making a good connection here in life. God, God somehow, some way, will ensure that the balances will be reestablished. Somehow. He realizes that. Someday the wicked will be held accountable somehow. I don't know entirely how. And the righteous will be honored. And you can see how far Solomon's come. He really has come a ways in his thinking and in his investigation. He's beginning to see a light at the end of the tunnel. And we're starting to see a resolution resolution take form in this book. And so then he comes to another big conclusion in verses 14 through 17. Verses 14 through 17. And in verse 14, he sees a similar situation that he saw in chapter 7. 
it's like one of the, it's very similar actually. Here it's just that the righteous are treated like the wicked. It's not that the righteous maybe die early or that the wicked have a long life, but it's like the righteous are treated as though they were the wicked person. And the wicked person is treated as though they're the righteous person. It's like calling good evil and evil good. And so Solomon's saying, yeah, today things seem really unfair. They're imbalanced. Righteousness is treated as wickedness. Wickedness is treated as righteousness. But as he just said, someday, somehow, God is going to right all wrongs. He must. If he's the king of the world, if he's the king of the universe, he must. Kings don't put up with those things. But in the meantime, the question is, while we wait for God to do that, what do we do in this life full of injustice? What do we do about it? Solomon says in verse 15, in verse 15, he says, so I praised joy. I praised joy because there's nothing better for the man under the sun, but that he might eat and drink and rejoice and he should cling to it in his labor according to the days of his life, which God has given to him under the sun. Ah, there's those words, eat, drink, and enjoy. In other words, and we have basically our conclusion here, you may be righteous and might be treated like a wicked person, so be thankful for what you have and enjoy as many of the good things that God has given to you because life is full of injustice. It's not just full of suffering. It's full of injustice. And you're going to be treated unjustly, unfairly. But enjoy the life that God has given you in the here and now. And be thankful for the good that you have. And then verses 16 and 17, he says, well, this is my conclusion. I was sleepless day and night trying to find an answer. And ultimately, I still haven't found out on my own what God is ultimately doing. But he says, I can encourage you to enjoy life, the life that you have, and you can be wise in it and avoid greater difficulty if you use wisdom. And so that, that is chapter eight. That is wisdom. And now we're going to move on to chapter nine. And it's all about eternity. It's all about eternity. And you can actually see the chiasm here. How chapter nine, eternity, actually corresponds well with chapter three in time, doesn't it? really does. There's even a unique word that's used in both of these chapters. It's the word to explain or to literally it means to purge out, something like that. Uh, it's a unique phrase that occurs only in those chapters in Ecclesiastes. And so it's kind of like showing that they mirror each other. Now in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, specifically cha- uh, verses 1 and 2, Solomon returns to this idea from chapter 3 on time. It doesn't matter who you are. Righteous, wicked, good, bad, clean, unclean, everybody dies. We've already heard this before. Everyone shares the same fate. And what will happen to them after they die? That's Solomon's question there in chapter 9. What will happen to them? Will they experience love from God? Will they experience hate? And so Solomon moans in verse 3, Not only does everyone experience the same fate, which is death. Everyone's going to experience that anyways. We also saw in chapter 7 that people are sinners. No one's perfect. 
everyone does evil, which is not a good omen for people and their chances after they die, is it? If you can establish the fact that everyone's evil, then what's going to happen to people after they die? That's not a good sign. Perhaps everyone will be punished, is what Solomon is thinking. So then in verse 4, Solomon says, It's better to be a dog who is still alive than a lion who is dead. Better to be a dog who's still alive than a lion who is dead. Now, today dogs are pets. And they're sweet. But back then, sadly, they were a nuisance. And they were a scum. Just read Philippians 3. Beware of the dogs. Okay. And there's a lot of terms for dog that are demeaning in Scripture. The dogs were considered a nuisance back then. They were the scavengers around the cities. The modern equivalent, I think, I just put something together for this, but the modern equivalent for this would be like better to be a housefly that's still alive than a dead horse. Better to be a housefly because houseflies are a nuisance, right? And we don't look fondly upon houseflies at all. Uh, Then if we were like a horse, but dead. Horses are lovely. They're beautiful creatures. They're strong. They're well, well respected today. But Solomon's saying better to be alive and to be a creature of little to no significance and even a nuisance than to be dead and mighty and strong, but you're dead. Why? Because verse five, even if you're insignificant, You're worth very little. You're a nuisance in society. Being alive gives you the advantage to evaluate life and prepare for your death. That's an advantage. The dead person, no matter how strong he was, no matter how wealthy he was, they don't have any advantage anymore. They've lost all the leverage. And so the dead, he says, don't even know anything. They don't even know anything. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. Hold on. Is this saying that there's no afterlife? They don't know anything at all. They cease to exist. Like Jehovah's Witnesses actually claim that this verse says, there's no afterlife except when you're finally resurrected. But, you know, the wicked, they don't ever have any afterlife afterwards. Is that what it's saying here? No, no, no. What they're saying is, is that what what actually Solomon is saying here is that those who are dead have no more portion in this life under the sun. They have no more portion in this life under the sun. That's what verse 6 is saying here in chapter 9. Everything Solomon has been evaluating is from the perspective of the here and now. It's under the sun. What you can see and hear and taste and smell and touch, right? Once somebody dies, they have no more thinking that can contribute to this here and now. They don't know anything in this life anymore. And so Solomon comes to his fifth big conclusion. We're already at the fifth big conclusion in verse 7 of chapter 9. And you can read along with me as I read this here. He says, go, eat. There's the word eat. Big conclusion. Eat with joy your bread and drink with a happy heart your wine. For God has already accepted your works. At every time may your garments be white and may oil not lack upon your head. And then in verse 9 he says, literally the word is see. See life with the woman whom you love. But the idea there is to experience. Experience life with the woman whom you love all the days of your life of vanity, which he has given to you under the sun all the days of your vanity. 
For that is your portion in life and in your toil, which you have toiled under the sun. Everything which your hand finds to do, do it with your strength. Do it with your utmost. For there is no deed or even thinking and knowledge and wisdom in Sheol or Sheol. That's like the grave which you are going there. In other words, he's saying, enjoy life because if you're still alive, then God has accepted you to enjoy it. Enjoy life because God has accepted you to enjoy it. In other words, if God wanted, you would be dead. If God wanted you to be dead, you'd be dead. So Solomon concludes, you're not dead, right? You're not dead because you're here, right? You're listening to me, okay? You're not dead. So because you're not dead and you're still alive, you can Enjoy his goodness, and you should. And you should. I mean, even specifically what he's saying here, get married. Enjoy your spouse. Proverbs 18, verse 22, He who finds a wife finds a good thing, and he obtains favor from Yahweh. And all your labor, do your best. And enjoy the process of your work. Don't get overly stressed out about it. Enjoy the process. Enjoy the work. Because once you're dead, you will have no more wisdom, knowledge, and skill to contribute to this life under the sun. It's over. It's over. Life is like a race, he says, but the speedy don't win it. It doesn't make sense. It's like the tortoise and the hare. It doesn't make sense. Except it's not that the hare was sitting and sleeping like in this picture. They're both competing and neither of them win. It's like a boxing match, but the strongest can't win it. That doesn't make any sense. Life is like a game of chess, but the smartest can't crack it. Life is like the classic game of Monopoly. But he who has the most money in the end doesn't win. What's up with that? Life is a game, and no one's qualified to win. If you're the best at anything, it doesn't matter. It's like it's rigged and you can't win it. It's like those uh, carnival games that you see. They're totally rigged. Man, you spend all this money and like, it's like literally impossible. Instead, every person who plays in the game of life, Solomon says, loses eventually. They all lose. Everyone loses. It's like, and this is sad, but it's like fish enjoying life in the sea, but whose end is simply just to get caught and then to get eaten. Like, that sounds pretty depressing. But that's, the, that's the, what he says. Like, he uses that as an example. Or it's like birds caught in a trap, only to be caught by the fowler. That's verses 11 and 12. Man lives his life only to have death sneak up on him and then take him away forever. That's how Solomon understands it. He realizes that. That's how he's viewing the eternity here. And so Solomon also imagines a scene in verses 13 through 15. And this kind of changes gears a little bit, but it's still along the same lines, where a king and a big army encircle a small town. So they're going to like blow this down away because they're like way overmatched. Okay, and so this king and this army, they're just going to take them out, kill all its people probably. And a poor wise man saves the city by using his wisdom, uses his wisdom to negotiate a treaty with the king. It's incredible. What a hero! He's a hero. But then everyone in the city eventually just kind of forgets him. That's what Solomon says. Like, whoa, what was the point of that? 
Like, do you know the name of the pilot who saved hundreds of passengers when he made an emergency landing in the Hudson River in New York with U.S. Airways Flight 1549 on January 15, 2009? Some of you might actually remember his name, which is awesome. It's really cool. Most probably don't. His name was Chesley Sullenberger, also known as Sully. I think there's a movie based off of that, actually, that Tom Hanks did. He was a hero. He was a hero. And everyone in America knew it at the time. His intelligence and quick thinking saved hundreds of lives. But people soon forget those kind of people. They forget those heroes. And that's not a knock against you. Like, I didn't remember his name. Oh, no. Terrible. No, no, that's not a knock against you or people who forget those things. And that's not the point. The point is, is it shows that being a hero doesn't last forever. No matter how great of a hero you were, it doesn't last forever. The poor wise man was a hero in Solomon's story. He was a, he was a hero. He saved the city. His wisdom was good. It overcame the, a king's strength. And so wisdom, Solomon says, is better than strength. There's a sense where wisdom is better than even strength of an army. I mean, people will even sometimes, often actually, will listen better to a calm, wise man than to a shouting king who's just commanding with orders, right? They'll often like listen to reason. Yeah, yeah, he makes more sense. I get it. And I, I respect the fact that he's approaching this in a calm way. And yet still, Solomon says, wisdom is fleeting. It's fleeting. It's very fleeting. People forget about those who even have such wisdom. And then verse 18, and this is the kicker. And even if they somehow didn't forget these people, which they always do, one little sin will ruin years of wisdom. Oh, that's so defeating. One little sin can ruin years of wisdom. How frustrating is that? It's like when your younger brother or sister comes into your room and then messes up a big project you've been working on for a long time, or like one false move in a Jenga set game, the whole thing comes crashing down. One false move and the whole thing that you've built toward is gone. And so is one little sin. It can mess up everything. It can ruin years of wisdom and good. And that is what actually kicks us off for the theme of chapter 10. But first, remember, chapter 9 was about eternity. And now chapter 10 is about role reversals. Role reversals. Role reversals. Solomon uses another analogy to teach his point. Like the Jenga set. It's like a dead fly in ointment. If you ever found a dead fly in your, I don't know, your cream or whatever that you use, you'd probably want to throw it away. I mean, like, some of you would just throw it away. You're like, that's disgusting. I can't do that. It ruins the whole thing. It spoils everything. And so he's saying, so sin and foolishness spoil much good and much wisdom. You have, it's like it wastes it all. And in the same way, just like you can, if you're driving along, just like you can smell like the sewer plant, even though it's like, in, like a mile away from you. So you can see a fool. You can smell a fool. You can see a fool from a long ways away when he's coming along. And that's what Solomon says. You can see him. It's like you can like smell him from a mile away. Like, I see his foolishness. It's so obvious. That's what foolishness does. It's, it's so dumb that it's obvious to people. And that's what verses 2 and 3 are saying. And then verse 4, when someone big or powerful is angry at you, use 
your composure and your calmness to diffuse the situation. Use your calmness to diffuse the situation. Uh, Law enforcement actually uses this tactic every day. It actually works really well. They don't always approach things by just saying, you know, like, we're going to pull our guns and we're going to, you know, force you. Uh, They'll often use these tactics for composure and calmness to get people to calm down. It's easy to get superheated when someone is angry at you. It's really easy to do that, to retaliate back. Stay calm. It often prevents worse things from happening. That's wisdom. And but, but the key here to this chapter is role reversals. And some things are just topsy-turvy in life. They just really are. They're flipped on its head. They kind of flip upside down. And some fools, some dumb people are put in high command, Solomon says. Why would you put that person in high command? I don't know. But sometimes that happens. Sometimes slaves are riding on horses while the princes are walking next to them on the ground. Like, why is that happening? I don't know. Dumb things happen in life. Things go topsy-turvy. That's verses 6 and 7. These are role reversals, and life is full of them. They don't make sense. And do you see kind of how there's like these circles that kind of flip things upside down? Here's more of these circles in life. And Solomon's talking about these circles again. They don't make sense. And then how about this one in verse 8? Some people dig ditches or pits. They're digging a pit, and then they're the ones that actually fall into the pit. Whoops. That's a role reversal. That shouldn't have happened. Or you're breaking down a wall, and the wall attacks you because there's a snake in it. Right? It's like, I was supposed to be the one breaking down the wall, and it, like, attacked me. Or he says you're building a stone wall, and then as you're building it, like, literally the stones come off. And then they just like roll on top of you and they kill you, right? That could happen. Like what? Why? The wall attacked me. What in the world? It's a role reversal. Or you're chopping trees. I love this one because it literally says in the Hebrew that like you're like, you know, using your axe. Like you're using the axe against the tree. And then it literally says in the Hebrew, then the tree uses you. And then like (laughs) falls on you. Like, whoa, what in the world? That's a role reversal. There are ironies in life. The hunter becomes the hunted kind of concept, right? The the boar is chasing the hunter. That's a role reversal. I mean, I don't know if some of you maybe have maybe chopped wood with your dad growing up or something. And maybe he might give you like a little miniature axe, you know. Be careful. You're chopping away, you know. And then he's got this like awesome axe where he's just like, bam, one, you know, bam. You're just like, I'm not getting anywhere with this thing. (laughs) You're barely making any progress. And he's just like chopping like it's nothing. It's like, ah, it's super easy. Well, that's kind of what verse, like what verse 10 is talking about. You can exert a lot of energy and strength and not get much anywhere with your little axe. And so the idea is that you need to get a better tool. You need to either sharpen your tool and get a better one. And that's the idea of work smarter, not harder. You don't have to keep exerting energy. Just work smarter. And so Solomon really uh, stands on that point there. Work smarter, not harder. Sharpen your blade. Get a better tool. Save yourself time and energy. There are ways to do that in life. And then verse 11, what happens when a snake charmer So he talks about snake charmers. What happens when a snake charmer doesn't actually successfully charm the snake? Uh Uh-oh. He's dead. (laughs) Right? He gets bitten and he dies. Bummer. 
I mean, he was an expert at it. No one else really could do it except him. And then he became a victim of his own expertise. That's a role reversal. Life has irony, and it can be kind of it can be a bitter irony. Actually, reminds me sadly of Steve Irwin, uh, master of all exotic and dangerous living things, and he had a knack of working with all kinds of animals, dangerous animals. And sadly, it was just like a simple stingray one day that he was swimming around and killed him. It was just taken his life gone. And he was an expert at all that stuff uh, with animals far more dangerous than that. That's a role reversal. The expert is outwitted by their own subject of expertise. And then in verses 12 through 14, he says, fools babble on with their words and the words themselves, he says, eat them up. That's a role reversal. They babble and babble foolishness. And then those words come back to bite them. Fools tire themselves out so that they don't even know how to get back to a city. This is an interesting one, too. It's like, it's literally like saying, like, fools weary themselves because they're so dumb. And so they don't even know how to use wisdom in their efforts. So they become too tired to even know their way back home, basically. That's kind of the idea. And then in verse 16, Solomon casts a woe upon a city whose king is super young and immature and whose princes prioritize their own pleasure first and not the welfare of the people. That's a role reversal. Kings are normally supposed to be old and wise. Princes should normally prioritize the people. So Solomon actually blesses the opposite. Blesses those who have a, a king who is wise and princes who prioritize the people in verse 17. And then he talks about this kind of a situation, if you're lazy, if you're lazy and you own a home in verse 18, and you probably live, if you're lazy and you own this home, you probably live in a house where like the ceiling sags or the roof drips because you're too lazy to fix them. The idea here is, and I want you to hear this, this is important. What goes around comes around. What goes around comes around. What you sow is what you reap. You get your just desserts. What goes around comes around. Are you lazy? Well, you're going to get, according to your laziness, you're going to get a sagging ceiling and a dripping roof. It's a key theme in this role reversal chapter. Verse 19 says, foolish, lazy people, they make bread. They make bread, but not for sustenance. Not for sustenance. They make bread for pleasure. They drink wine. But not to quench their thirst, they do that, presumably, to get drunk or to just be glad and joyful. And then money is their answer to everything in life. Jack? (laughs) I've heard a rumor about this. A lazy person sees money as the get-out-of-jail-free card in life. They do. That's what lazy people do. And most of them visit Las Vegas every weekend at slot machines, right? That's where lazy people are who don't want to work for their money. They think money is their answer to avoid a life of hard work. But what Solomon is saying, what goes around comes around. These things will eventually turn on the lazy person and the fool. They will. Your money will turn on you. Your laziness will turn on you. If money is your answer to everything, it will turn on you. It will turn on you. And then verse 20, even a word that you speak privately against someone, you're gossiping about someone, you speak privately about someone, 
uh, it can turn on you too. It can find its way. A little bird will carry it away. Somehow it leaks out and it gets back to the person you were talking about. What goes around comes around. What goes around comes around. That's role reversals. And that's chapter 10. And here we begin to see Solomon's nauseating circles are starting to get redeemed. And we'll see that mostly here in chapter 11. But just to kind of recap really quick here, these circles that God has built into life work so that you sow, what you sow is what you reap. What you sow is what you can almost think of a circle like what you sow is what you reap. What you sow is what you reap. That's the circle. And it's actually turning for something good. Is starting to turn for something good. Think about it this way. Is money your idol? Money will turn on you. Is laziness your idol? Hard work will come upon you. Is pleasure your idol? Emptiness is your future. Is gossip your idol? Your gossip will be spoken about everywhere. Every idol in life eventually gives you the opposite of what you're seeking. Do you know that's how idolatry works? Every idol that you have will eventually give you the exact opposite. The perfectionist is never satisfied. Never. He's never satisfied. Nothing is perfect for the perfectionist, though he aspires to it, right? That's true with every idol. Think of an idol, and you'll find they're actually getting the opposite of what they want. That Solomon realized that he sees that's written into the fabric of life. And the theme of what goes around, comes around, continues into chapter 11, but in a good way. And I want you to see this. This is so cool. Verse 11, or sorry, chapter 11. And it's all about giving. It's all about giving. Chapter 11, verse one. So important. Cast your bread upon the surface of the water for after many days, you will find it. Okay. It's like, that's a little mysterious. What is he talking about? The idea is communicating giving. It's like walking alongside a river. You're taking a little bit of bread or food or something. And if you've ever thrown something into a river, and if you're walking with the river as the river's flowing, you might throw it and it's like, okay, that's gone forever. You know, I'm not going to see that again. And it's like, and what he's saying here is like when you're throwing your bread on the water, it's like giving your food or giving something to someone else. It's gone. I'll never see that again, but pray that that blesses that person. It's great. Very good. Later on, further down the bank of the river, and this is sometimes what will happen. You'll throw something on the river and you'll walk along a mile or something. And then you'll find that wash up along shore right next to you. Find that bread wash up along shore. It's a proverb. It means give and it will be given to you. Give and it will be given to you. Solomon's saying hard times are likely coming for all of us. I'm not the Messiah. It's clear now. The kingdom of Israel is splitting. Nations are going to rise up against nations. Difficult times are coming. In the difficulty, he says, give. Give. It's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive, counterintuitive to what we would expect. But what goes around, right? What goes around comes around. If you put your bread on the water, God will ensure that it circles back to you. Wow. And there you see the circles of Solomon have truly been redeemed. Yes, God has orchestrated these nauseating circles into life. Yes, he does. Life is going around and around. It seems pointless. It seems meaningless. But these circles are built upon a fabric that offers an unsuspecting blessing to those who are wise. Give. Bless others, especially in hardship. 
Wow, that doesn't seem right. Really? Because God will honor that and he will bless you in his time. He will. That's verse 2, actually. Solomon says in verse 2, Give even to seven portions or eight portions. Give bountifully. Give more than you would expect because you don't know what evil is going to come on the earth. Don't hoard when you're preparing for trouble. Don't be the COVID preparers who bought all the toilet paper and put it in their houses. Don't do that. Solomon says, give and give generously in hard times. Verse 3 says, this is interesting. I love these. What happens when clouds get thick and dark? It rains, right? Makes sense. What happens to a tree? Where is a tree going to fall when it starts to fall in the northern direction? It falls to the north. These are what I like to call duh statements. Uh, duh. Yeah, of course, right? But what's the point? You can't control what God's doing. Once the tree starts to fall, you can't stop it. Once the clouds get dark, the rain's going to come. Hard times are coming, Solomon says. They are. Get ready for the tree to fall. Get ready for the rain. Get ready. And then in verses 4 through 6, we have... What we might say, what I like to say, is called the paralysis of analysis. You ever heard of that before? The paralysis of analysis. It just means that when you stand there and you just analyze everything to death, right, you're just analyzing it, just going to think about it a lot and just try and figure it all out, you know, you don't get anything done when you do that. Paralysis of analysis. And usually you just don't even f- figure it out anyways. Are you watching the clouds and not doing your work? then you're not going to have a good harvest, Solomon says. You're not going to eat this winter. Verse 5, you can't even understand how the wind works or exactly how a baby is miraculously formed in a mother's womb. We're still figuring out some of that stuff, right? A lot of that stuff. We understand more stuff than they did back in the day, but understanding how a human is formed in a mother's womb, that is miraculous. If you can't understand how the wind works or how a baby is formed in a mother's womb, so too you cannot understand God's work and what he's doing. Solomon realizes you can't understand it. can't fully understand it. In other words, stop just sitting there and overanalyzing and trying to figure out everything that God is doing. Stop doing that. You can't figure it out. Get up and start working. Start doing things in righteousness and in godliness. Start giving to people in hardship. It's time to stop. This is really a commentary, and Solomon's talking to himself primarily. I've done all this investigation. Now it's time for me to stop and to get up and start trusting God and doing what I need to do. <clears throat> the idea is, is let's just get moving. Sow your seed in the morning, sow your seed in the evening. Don't presume on God. He's saying, do it in both. Don't just sow in the morning, sow in the evening. You don't know where God is going to bless you or when he's going to bless you. So multiply your labors in the morning and in the evening because you don't know which crop will grow better and you don't know how God is going to work for you tomorrow. You don't know. That's verse 6. And then in verses 7 through 10, Solomon urges us to live life to the fullest while we still have it. Like in verse 7, while you have eyesight, enjoy the sun. Enjoy the sun while you have eyesight. Because if you live long enough, eventually you'll probably go blind. At some point, if nothing else fails in your body, you'll go blind. 
Verse 8, even if someone should live a long time, he should remember that dark days are coming. You will get old and life will not be as enjoyable as it once was. Dark days are coming, not just externally, but to your own body, to your own life. You will eventually see dark days. And so we reach the final conclusion of Solomon's six conclusions in verse 9. This is the final conclusion here of all the conclusions. Rejoice, young man, in your childhood, and let your heart be glad in the days of young manhood. This is verse 9. And follow after, or go after the impulses of your heart. The word is literally just ways of your heart. Go after the ways of your heart and the desire of your eyes. But know that concerning all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Be careful. Do not do it in sin. You can enjoy these things, but recognize God will bring you into judgment. I know that. Verse 10, and turn away stress or vexation from your heart and make evil pass away. Literally, he says, from your flesh. For childhood, and I love this word, and it literally says, and the blackness. What does that mean? Childhood and the blackness are fleeting. They're vanity. What is blackness? Well, everyone in the ancient Near East pretty much has black hair. Your hair's not always going to be black, unless you dye it, but that just doesn't count, right? It's fleeting. It's going to go away. So all in all, enjoy life, Solomon says. But what's unique about this conclusion? What is the, what is the unique thing about this conclusion from all the other ones? What's he added to this one? Enjoy life. Why? Because harder days are coming when you get old, and you will die sooner than you think. You will die sooner than you think. And what kicks off... Chapter 12 is that idea of age, okay? So now we've reached the end of chapter 11. That was about giving, give even in hardship. And then chapter 12, it's about remembering, remembering. All right, I know we're running out of time here. I'm going to try to go as quick as I can. Verse one, verse one. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Remember your creator in the days of your, your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near in which you say, I do not have delight in them. Wow. Boy, that speaks so well to you, doesn't it? Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Are you young? Wow. <laughs> that was awesome. Yes. Young enough to pull a Twix bar down from the ceiling. All right? You're young. You're young. And Solomon is talking specifically to you in this verse. Solomon's begging you to turn to your creator and remember him while you're young. Why? Why? Because your life is not full of pain now like it will be when you get old. It will be much harder to approach God in pain than right now in your youth. So now is the time to remember your creator and to seek him. Before you start losing your vision in verse 2, and the sun is not as bright anymore and things get hazy, and before your legs begin to tremble and you bend over and hunch and your teeth fall out and your eyes change color. Verse 3. Literally. You're like, I don't see those in the verses. Well, there's a lot of imagery that's very metaphorical, gives these word pictures of old age. It's really interesting. You should go back and study that sometime. But it's depicting all of these realities. Verse 4. Before you start losing your hearing. But oddly enough, strange sounds at night wake you up somehow. Or verse 5. Before you become afraid of heights and afraid to leave your home because of danger. Before you become too weak to walk on your own and the pleasures of life just no longer satisfy you. And then verse 6, 
before the silver cord is snapped. It's like a cord that's being stretched out and stretched, 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 and then it snaps. That's life. Life gets stretched, 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 stretched as you get older and older and older, and then snaps. It's done. You're overspent. It actually reminds me of Bilbo, what he says in Lord of the Rings. I feel thin, sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread. That's what old age does. And remember God, Solomon says, before the golden bowl is broken. If the bowl that you eat from is broken, you can't eat anymore. And then he uses this imagery of... uh, a pitcher by a well. In the old days, you have a pulley. You have a, a pitcher or a bucket attached to the pulley. And you use that to get the water out of the well. If the pitcher by the well shatters, if the wheel pulley is broken that gets the water out of the well, how can you get the water out of the well? You can't. When those two break, when the pitcher shatters and the pulley snaps, life is over. Life is over. That's what Solomon's saying. And then verse 7. Verse 7. Very important verse. Verse 7. Chapter 12. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Just like man was made from dust, so he returns to dust. Like Genesis, right? Man was made from dust, he returns to dust. Remember God before that happens. You need to remember God before that happens. But notice too, Solomon believes that man's spirit also returns to God. I love it. He's come a long way since chapter 2, hasn't he? Because in chapter 2, he said, well, man's like an animal. And who knows whether he's going to go to heaven or go back to God or not, or whether he's just going to be buried in the ground and there's no afterlife. No, no, no. Solomon has come a long ways. He does believe the spirit returns to God now. He does believe that. And God will right all wrongs somehow. He's definitely come a long ways. And then he concludes in verse 8. And this may be a little surprising. The conclusion, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Everything is vanity. Is this really his final conclusion? Really? After all that, you've come a long ways, haven't you? Solomon, you made some strides, didn't you? Why is this your final conclusion to everything? As though it's vanity. But you see, that's Solomon's conclusion when considering life here and now. Here and now. It's vanity when you don't factor in God. When you don't factor in His promises. When you don't factor in His Word. His revelation. When you don't factor in faith and spiritual things and eternity. When you don't factor those things in, it's what? Vanity. Right? That means Solomon intentionally left his conclusion with a big hole that remains to be filled. This is the end of Ecclesiastes. There is a big hole. There is a big hole. And what does does Solomon put in the big hole? Fear God. We don't know all the answers yet, Solomon says to his people. We must fear him and let him answer the questions in his time. We must. We must. Now, verses 9 through 11, a few comments are made about Solomon as it kind of wraps up the book. And they're to be read by everyone delivering the sermon to 
the people in the cities around the world, including in Israel, and it encourages people in his generation and in future generations to consider Solomon's words. Consider his words. Consider what Kohelet has said. Consider what the preacher has said. Why? Because he's qualified for this. He's really qualified. He's really wise. And so Solomon's wise. He arranged many proverbs. He sought out words that were delightful. He didn't just try to like make everything pessimistic. He really tried to find the true joy that is in life without sacrificing any truth. And keeping reality. Joy in reality. That's what he sought for. And if you take these words to heart, you will find them to be anchors in your life. Like strong nails that you can hammer into a firm piece of wood. And you also find, he says, words like these in other wisdom literature. I know the phrasing is a little bit different, but basically what it's saying. Like Proverbs, Job, and then Ecclesiastes would be the third one, I would say. Wisdom literature like this all point to the same message, which means that they all come from the same author. One shepherd who wrote them all. And that is Yahweh God. In verse 11. I think it's Solomon's hint at his own God without mentioning his name. And it's the first time he calls him anything else other than God in the entire book. This is the first time he uses another name and he calls him the shepherd. The one message from the shepherd is critical. This is the point of the book. It's the point of Ecclesiastes. And how does Ecclesiastes relate to other wisdom literature like Proverbs and Job that has this one message from one author? The key theme in all of these books is actually to fear God in all of them. All of them. You're like, really? It is? Yes. Job 28, 28. Fear the Lord. Fear Adonai. Proverbs 1, 7. Fear Yahweh. And then Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Fear God. All of them say it. It's the punchline to all of these books. And so we've reached the end of the chiasm, the final fear God in verse 13 here at the end. Verses 13 and 14 say the end of the matter. Everything's been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this applies to every person. For every work God will bring into judgment. Even concerning everything which is hidden, whether it's good or whether it's evil. The entire conclusion, fear God. But what do we fear or what do we learn that fearing God means? What do we learn that it means? It's not being frightened by him. That takes the definition beyond what it means here. It's not just having a somber reverence for him. Although I can include that. That's not taking the definition far enough. Remember, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 8, they all mention fear God. And fearing God in each of those passages means we let God be God, He's in control, we are not, and we're completely submitting to His will. That's what fearing God means. That's what fearing God means. We must wait for Him to speak and wait for Him to act. And we are desperately waiting for His revelation. That is really what Solomon means by fearing God. And is it any wonder that the next books that are written in Scripture are actually the prophets, starting with Obadiah, and then Joel, and then Jonah, and Amos, and Hosea, and Micah, and Isaiah. And that's kind of the order of them. And as as they go, these are the next books that actually are inserted into the canon as history continues after Solomon. And Solomon's saying, wait for God's revelation. We haven't heard anything from him about what's going to happen now that I've failed. We don't know. But we wait on the edge of our seats. That's fearing God. And what did the prophets prophesy about? Judgment? Yep. 
Exile? Yes. God abandoning his people? Yes. For a time. But what else did they prophesy about? A Messiah? Yep. And one who could do far better than Solomon could ever do. And so fearing God means waiting for the revelation of his prophets and waiting for the revelation of his word, which culminates in the Messiah. It culminates in Jesus Christ. You must understand this if you want to pull away the main theme of this weekend. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to every unanswered question in Ecclesiastes. It is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the answer to every unanswered question in Ecclesiastes. The gospel fills the whole. It fills the whole. If Solomon were here today, today, the gospel would blow his mind because the gospel single-handedly resolves every unsolvable problem that Solomon was left with. It does it all. It does it all. And you're like, oh, are we done yet? No, just one more thing. I'm going to show you this really quick. This is really cool. We're almost there. Remember how Solomon said a few times, there's nothing new under the sun? Nothing new. There's nothing new. Everything's the same. But newness is a hallmark of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.17 So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? A new creation. The old things have passed and all things are new. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Even the new covenant. Newness is the very fabric of the gospel. In other words, Solomon had no concept for this newness. He didn't live to see these days of newness. But when God brought his son into the world way after Solomon, he did something brand new that no one had ever seen before. No one could have even conceived of it because God's gospel completely breaks all the rules of Ecclesiastes. It breaks all the rules. The gospel breaks all the rules of life. It breaks all the rules of life. Also, remember when Solomon spoke about circles? They're meaningless. They're nauseating. Well, the gospel redeems the circles too. Because once we understand in Romans 11, verse 36, that all things are from him and through him and to him, right? They're from him, they're through him and to him. Then we understand that God is the center of everything. And that circle never gets old. And that circle gives us all the meaning in life that we need. All of it. Everything. How about wisdom? Remember Lady Wisdom? I can't find Lady Wisdom. Where is she? Except, are not all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge contained in who? Christ. That's Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. Yeah, from Solomon's perspective, there was no man who could find or attain to Lady Wisdom. But Jesus Christ would go outside the box and break those rules. And he would not only find Lady Wisdom, he would help us to find her too in the gospel. And remember the unattainability to God in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Who can contend with one who is mightier than he? Who can attain to God? No one can attain to God. Except we have 
Jesus Christ in 1 Timothy 2.5, who is the only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only one that can attain to God and represent man. As Job longed for in Job chapter 9, verse 33, there's no mediator between us who can set his hand on God and set his man, hand on man at the same time. There's no one who can do that. Yes, there is, Job. You just don't know yet. You just don't know yet. Job and Solomon didn't have all of the, the divine revelation like you and I have. Even Daniel would later prophesy that one like the Son of Man would reach the Ancient of Days. That's the really critical term. He reached the Ancient of Days. He attained to the Ancient of Days. And it's that idea, the Son of Man. He's a man attained to the Ancient of Days. He is a God-man that can touch both God and man. The gospel is the answer to Ecclesiastes. And then perhaps the most important of all, The fact that the righteous suffer. Remember that? The righteous are suffering. The wicked prolong their lives in wickedness. Jesus Christ and his gospel brings perfect fulfillment to this. This is so cool. Because in order for sinners like you and me, in order for us to prolong our lives and our wickedness, because we're wicked people. We are. We need a righteous man to suffer, don't we? We need a righteous man to suffer so that the guilty may go free. That's 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Sinners cannot go free unless a righteous man suffers in their place. And that's why the righteous have suffered all throughout history. Because God has been operating this world not simply according to just simple justice standards like we would expect, but according to an extraordinary gospel that breaks every rule. Why? So that the wicked may go free. So that you and I may go free. That's the newness of the gospel that Solomon longed for. He longed for that. He longed for those answers. And he feared God and trusted God. Somehow that's going to be fulfilled. And I don't know how, but we know how the gospel fulfills it. The righteous one must suffer so that the wicked can live and have access to an unattainable God and break free from the meaningless circles of life to glorify God forever. That is the wisdom of the gospel. Truly. The gospel is the unexpected wisdom from Solomon. It is the unexpected wisdom from Solomon. And while Solomon never lived to see it fully realized and revealed to him, he learned to fear God and waited patiently for those answers. But you have the fulfillment of this unexpected wisdom. You have the gospel. And the question to you now then is, will you then fear God and believe it? Will you fear God and believe it? That's the question you need to come away with this weekend. Let's pray. Father, that is your gospel. We know it from your word. Solomon gives us so much wisdom in Ecclesiastes. We've seen it. Hopefully we've understood it. It breaks sometimes our intuition It's counterintuitive. It's unexpected. And he left fearing God, but with questions still unanswered. We have all of those big questions answered in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and in the gospel. We are sinners. We should be punished. But you have operated life unexpectedly so that a righteous one would suffer and the wicked 
would be given pardon. Help every single student, I pray, to understand that for themselves and believe that and embrace it. Lord God, and may we long to understand these things more. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you that it's unexpected because it makes you the hero. It makes you the hero and we worship you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.